So this last week, I had an unusual question asked of me. You'll understand this better tonight if you'll come to movie night. You'll understand better where this question came from and why this question came up. But a longtime church member come up to me and, and asked me a question that revealed something to me that I'd never really thought of. This was the question. So Seth, what exactly do you say to someone when you take them from the altar and you go back to that back room and you, you share the gospel with them, what is it exactly that you're saying to them while you're in the room? I thought, you know, that's a great question, isn't it? I don't mean for it to be mysterious. I don't mean for it to be private. I don't mean for it to be closed door. But you understand, and I think you'll appreciate, that whenever a soul is burdened by the weight of sin and their need for salvation through Christ, there might be some things that they need to discuss privately with, with me or me and my wife, depending on who it is. So I always try to be sensitive to that. Along with the fact that I believe we do a disservice by trying to rush through that process at an altar. I think we do profound disservice to a soul that is in anguish, that has spent a lifetime searching for truth and has finally come face to face with it. I think that we do a profound disservice by trying to just quickly lead them through a sinner's prayer at an altar when really that's not even what saves us to begin with. And that's why we do what they used to do. Back in the 17 and 1800s, they would have after meetings and they would go back and they would sit down with a person whose heart was stirred by what they heard preached. And they would discuss that with them and work through some of the different uh, difficulties and hang ups that their soul was facing with the hopes and the desire to urge them to finally, once and for all, place their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question was, what happens in that room? When you go through those doors and that person walks in and they are lost and they are undone and their sin is plaguing their life, what is it that's said in that room that allows them to walk out gloriously and eternally changed? Well, I want to be clear on something this morning. It's not anything that I say it's not anything that's developed in my head. It's not anything that I am personally responsible for that affects a soul that way. On the contrary, praise God, I have nothing to do with it. Because if it had to do with me and what I said and what I thought and my perspective when we walked into that room, that person would walk out just as lost as they were when they walked in. Say, preacher, then what, what do you do? Where do you go? What do you say? And that's what I want to share with you this morning in a sermon entitled Behind Closed Doors. I want to just invite you all in the room this morning. That's what I'd like to do. I would like to open the door of that room that we take folks into when they're concerned over their soul. And I'd like to take a moment this morning led by the Holy Spirit of God and break apart to you this morning the truths that we present in that room. But I need you to do me a favor. I need you to avail your heart to those truths. I want you to look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter number 13 and verse number 5. It's a verse that I'd like to start off with this morning because it's my desire that every heart in this room 
will practice this verse right now. The Bible says in verse number five, examine yourselves. Whether ye be in the faith, prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? What an important question. What an important question. And it's a question that I oppose to every single person in this building. I don't care how long you've been a church member at Trinity Baptist Church. I'd like for you to have the courage this morning to re-examine your own personal salvation experience. To determine if it was real. To determine if it was genuine. I can't think of anything more important to do right now than that. Then to take a moment, and I know it takes courage. I know it takes a certain level of bravery and vulnerability for us to go back to that moment. But if you're truly born again, you're glad to go back to that moment. I mean, you can't hardly wait to go back to that moment because that moment you look back to and you realize that that was the moment that changed you forever. But there are some, perhaps several, that tiptoe around that moment. That don't feel so comfortable about it. That every time we bring it up or every time we preach about it, it kind of makes you shuffle in your seat and kind of makes you break out in a cold sweat and you begin to, to wonder where you stand. I have a simple goal today. A simple goal. And that is to ensure by the preaching of God's holy word and by the leadership of the Holy Spirit this morning that every single person in this building will walk out of here knowing where they stand with God. And I believe that potential exists. But you have to be willing to follow the leadership of this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5 and be willing to examine yourself. Say, you know, here's what I've learned in in dealing with folks that aren't a part of church and dealing with folks that are a part of church. Everybody's saved. Say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, if you start asking somebody, are you Christian? Everybody's a Christian. Everybody. And then immediately following them affirming the fact that they are supposedly a Christian, they'll begin to tell me all the reasons why they think they fit into that category. Hi, my name is Pastor Seth Amos. Uh, I'm out here knocking on doors today. Wanted to talk to you about uh, the Lord Jesus. We believe that He's coming back soon. And, and we want to invite you to come and visit us. But uh, we're just coming by to, to check on you. See if there's anything we can pray with you about. See how, how you're doing spiritually. Is there anything that we can talk to you about? Oh, I'm a Christian. Okay, great. That's wonderful. Yeah, I've been a member of such and such a church for a number of years. Okay. I got baptized when I was 14 years old. and All right. And they just go right down the list of all the reasons why they fit into that category of Christian. But do you understand that God's word only permits one group into that category called Christian? And it's not based on your denominational ties. You do not have to be a Baptist to get to heaven. You do not have to be a Catholic to get to heaven. You do not have to be affiliated with any organization or any specific group to get to heaven, to be born again. 
There is not a certain list. Uh, there's not like a, a spiritual divine to-do list that you have to accomplish to get into that category. You understand, this Bible is not a book that tells us all the things we have to do to get to heaven. It's a Bible, or it's a book rather, that tells us all that God has done to permit us the opportunity to go to heaven. And so there is not some long divine spiritual to-do list that you have to accomplish to get yourself into the category of Christian. And what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to show you what takes place in that back room when someone comes to this altar and they say, Preacher, I need to be saved. And we get out of here and we get back to that room and I apologize when that happens. I'm a, I, I walk out. I don't see you. I don't talk to you when you leave. You go ahead and leave without me talking to you because if you could forgive me, that's more important. And so I make my way back there to that back room and we sit down around that table and it all begins right there and I'd like to pick up from there. Again, one of the top priorities today right now is ensuring the genuine conversion of every person in this church, whether you're a first-time attendee, whether you're a non-member but you've been visiting for a while, whether you're a brand new member that just joined, or whether you're a seasoned member of Trinity Baptist Church, you and you alone know how long you've been hiding in the shadows. You and you alone know how long you've been struggling with your own spiritual life without telling anybody about it. You and you alone know, based on the Holy Spirit and His urgency in your soul, where you stand with God, you know how that feels. You know where you stand. And I just have to believe that there are many here today, potentially, that have made a profession of faith. They've gone through the motions. They've, quote unquote, prayed the prayer. But every time we preach about Jesus, something's wrong. Something's missing, and I don't want that to be the case anymore. So let's go into that room together this morning. I'd like for you to take your Bibles. If you wouldn't, turn with me to Romans chapter number 3. Romans chapter number 3. I want to show you what exactly takes place in that room that allows a person to walk in lost and undone and then walk out gloriously saved and at peace with God. Behind closed doors. And I want every single person here to pretend, if you will, or if you don't have to pretend, I want you just to open up your hearts and, and act like a concerned soul this morning. I'm going to act like every one of you came to me and said, Preacher, I, think I, I don't think I'm saved. I'd like to be saved. I'm going to pretend that that's you this morning, every person in the room. And we're going to start in Romans chapter number 3 and verse number 23. Now, to be clear... When I walk in that room, there's an understanding that I have built over the years that if I walk into that room and the Holy Spirit of God is not leading and guiding and directing the conversation, it will fall short of God's intention. And so when I walk into that room with a concerned soul, there is a silent prayer that is prayed as I walk through the doorway. Dear God, help me. Because I cannot do this without you. We sit down at the table. At times, tears streaming down that concerned soul's cheeks. Unsettled at best. Mortified and heartbroken at worst. And as we sit at the table, I always begin with a simple question. Why are we here? What is this about? 
What is God doing in you that has led you to have the courage to come out and have this conversation with me? And boy, the answers are varied. Ranging from just a a heart that is so tenderized and so softened already that they just begin to pour out what sin there is in their life and how far short they have fallen from what God's expectation was of their life. Or they'll begin to tell me about things that happened to them when they were younger that, that still to this day haunt and disturb them in their deepest recesses of their soul. Or they'll begin to tell me about how well, they just felt something and, and, and they don't know why. They don't understand it all. They just know that God's moving in them. And so they wanted to talk it out with somebody. And everything in between. And so I want you to understand that, that these conversations are in fact varied. They are never, ever the same from one person to the next. Because you've been through something that this person over here hasn't been through. And so the conversation inevitably will go different from one person to the next, but we are always highlighting the same truth. And it starts with understanding that every person in this room has a severe issue with what we call sin. Sin is the root problem of everything. Say, preacher, it can't be that simple. Yes, the things that that person did to you when you were younger, they were not God's fault. They were the sinner's fault that did it to you. And so sin is the problem. Those things that you've done that you regret in your life and you might very well go to your grave regretting. Can I tell you, those are not to blame on God. That's sin. And in that case, it's your sin that's the problem. In every single case, sin is the issue. And the Bible teaches us that in Romans chapter number 3 and verse number 23. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, there are some people when we walk in that room, their heart is already so soft. They've already been so humbled that we don't have to spend a lot of time on that subject. But whenever I'm sitting across the table from someone and I ask them, would you consider yourself to be a sinner? And they say, well, no, I'm a pretty good person. Then we go on into more detail, and that's what I'm going to do this morning. I want to start by considering what sin is. Sin, let us all understand here this morning, sin is real. It's a major problem. It is ultimately one of the great reasons why Jesus gave His life on the cross of Calvary. Sin is a problem, and it is real. I don't care what megachurches are preaching. I don't, want, I don't care what charismatic movements are trying to, to uh, promote. I'm telling you, based on God's own word here in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So what is sin? What is it? Sin is the breaking of God's perfect moral law. Did you know God had a perfect moral law? He does. It's still just as active today as it's ever been. It's a moral law that we have derived all of our moral laws from in our country. Did you know there's a reason why you're not allowed to kill somebody in the United States? And there's a, it's a bigger reason than just you shouldn't take somebody else's life. There's a, a very specific reason why that law exists in the United States. And it's derived from God's perfect moral law that says thou shalt not kill. Did you know that there's a reason why we have a law in our country that you're not supposed to steal? 
That when you steal, you're breaking a law and you have to pay a penalty for it? It's because God's perfect moral law has set up that standard when it says, Thou shalt not steal. Can we get into some more personal things? Things that aren't necessarily laws in our country? Do you know the Bible says, Thou shalt not use the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for God shall not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. The name of God is holy, holy, holy. And when we use it in place of a cuss word, it is breaking God's perfect moral code. It's called blasphemy. Jesus says in Matthew that the, the, the perfect moral law of God, what we call the Ten Commandments, that those Ten Commandments are not just based on our actions, but they are also based on our attitudes because you understand God doesn't only see you, He knows what's inside of you. And so Jesus takes it a step further and He says that whatever man looks upon a woman with lust has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Whoa. He says whoever hates his brother is guilty of of murder. The idea there is that Jesus is trying to show us that God's standard is not just the outward action against God's perfect moral law, but it's an inward action against God's perfect moral law. And the result of this reality is that every person in this room, myself included, we're guilty. Every one of us are guilty. Guilty for breaking God's perfect moral law. And you see, a sin becomes especially grotesque when we understand who we are sinning against. You see, we look at sin and we, could, we say, how could God ever punish someone for all eternity for just 75 years worth of sin? It seems unbalanced. It seems unfair. I was listening to another documentary just this past week, and I'll tell you, there was a brilliant example, illustration given. I want to share it with you this morning. It didn't derive from me. A young man was sharing this example. He said, well, let's, let's look at it this way. The sin that we commit is worthy of eternal justice because the person we are sinning against is eternal. You understand whenever we sin, we're not just sinning against ourselves. We're not just sinning against our spouse, or our children, or our family. We are sinning against, listen closely, a holy, holy, holy God who is eternal and just and wrathful. He said, well, let's use this as an example. He said, if I took a key out of my pocket... And I went out into the parking lot and I grabbed a piece of gravel and I started scratching that piece of gravel with my key. Most of you would maybe think I was a little weird, but you wouldn't say anything about it because it's just a rock. But if I took that same key out to a junkyard and I found a halfway decent, uh, what what brand of car would be in a junkyard? Let's see here. (laughs) A Dodge, right? No, I'm kidding. I'm not going to play that game. No, I'm not going to do it. Okay, some of you are sitting there, you know what brand you like and you know what brand you don't. We're not playing that game here today. Okay? But you're out in the junkyard and you take that same key and you walk up to just a car that's stacked up in the pile and you start scratching it. Somebody's probably going to say, hey, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? There may not be a major penalty, but I'm here to tell you, somebody's going to question your integrity. 
Then you take that same key and you walk out into a used car lot or maybe a brand new car lot and you take that key and you start running it down the side of that car. Somebody's going to come out and they're going to get hold of you. And they're going to say, what are you doing? They're going to call the cops. And they're going to fine you for what you did. And then you take that same key and you walk into a lot filled with Lamborghinis and Ferraris. And you take that key and you start running it down the side of a Lamborghini. Ah, big mistake. Big mistake. You see, the problem that we have in our world today is that preachers, supposed preachers, so-called preachers, have so diminished the holiness and glory of the God that we serve that whenever we look at our own sin, we see it as no big deal like we're scratching on that rock out in the parking lot. But I want you to understand something, that whenever we sin against a thrice holy God, it is a big deal worthy of eternal wrath and justice. For He is a holy God. Finally, sin has always been and always will be unacceptable with God. I wish this morning that I had a seared conscience enough to spend what time we have left trying to justify your sin and make you feel better about it. But there is nowhere from cover to cover of this book that allows me to do that. There is no place in this book that permits me the opportunity to tell you that your sin's not that big of a deal, that everybody else is doing it, that it's not really that, that big of a problem. See, God's Word doesn't treat sin like that. God's Word always treats sin as a major, massive problem. It's what plummeted the entire human race into sin in the Garden of Eden. Say, preacher, why are you hounding this so hard? Well, remember, I told you at the beginning that if it's a person who's already humbled and broken over their sin, I don't spend a lot of time talking about all those things. But if somebody walks in and they say, well, I consider myself to be a pretty good person, really, then that's where I go with them. And we take some time and we really consider what it means in Romans 3.23 when it says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You see, it's never made sense to me how a supposed gospel preacher can try to preach the gospel without also preaching about sin. You understand that it's because of our sin that we need the gospel. It's because we all are sinners and we have all broken God's perfect moral law that we all stand in need of the blood that was shed on this cross by Jesus Christ Himself. And so we we understand this morning that we have to first come to grips with the reality of our sin before we can ever move into that next place. So we looked at the problem of sin and then we go from there and consider the price of sin. Turn with me to Romans chapter number 6 and verse 23. Romans chapter 6 verse 23. Some of you will find this to be familiar. Some of you, but this might be the very first time that you've ever walked through these verses with me. And again, my hope and desire is whether you've been here for, a, for, for 30 years or 40 years or whether you've been here for a year or whether today's your first day, I want you to consider where you stand with God. Was your conversion real? Was it sincere? Was it based on the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ? Or was it because your friends went forward and you decided to as well? Or was it because you just felt something and decided to move? Or what... Anything short of an understanding of what Jesus Christ did on your behalf is short of true salvation.
Romans chapter number 6 and verse number 23. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. You understand there is a price that must be paid for sin. You say, who came up with all of this? God did. That's who came up with this. And so before you start bellyaching over the preacher, hounding on sin and its cost and all these things, you need to understand that there was an eternal redemption covenant authored between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit before the world was ever created. A covenant by which God the Father would give His Son a people. And God's Son would give His life as a ransom for the people to redeem them back to God. And the Holy Spirit would take and enact that covenant and form what we call today the church. This eternal covenant existed before the foundations of the world were ever laid. This was God's plan. This was God's design. This is how God formulated the plan. And I've got news for you. You may not like the plan, but you don't have the right to change the plan. Only the author of the plan can change the plan, and he's unchanging. And so we understand based on God's word that there is a price that must be paid for sin, and that price is death. Just as God's holiness brings about a great weight over sin, so God's wrath and justice demands payment for our unrighteousness, for our sin. The ultimate price that we all must pay is the price of death. Both temporal death, when we leave this life, but also eternal death in a place called hell. I want you to understand something. Whenever God formed hell, it was not formed for you. That was not part of the plan. I can show you, based on the authority of God's word, that whenever God formed this place we call hell, God did not form it for mankind. It was formed for the fallen angels and the devil. When they sinned against God in heaven and God cast them out, that's why God formed hell. It wasn't formed for man. And so before you get upset over the fact that a loving God would send people to hell, that wasn't part of the plan. In fact, God has done everything necessary to prevent you from having to go there. We'll get to that in a moment. So we're talking about both a physical death as well as a spiritual death. This is why we all eventually die. Because according to Romans 3.23, all have sinned. It is a combination of our sin and a rejection of Jesus Christ that results in us having to die and go to hell. When we combine together sin against a holy God and then reject the payment that Jesus made for that sin, we choose by our own desire to pay the penalty of sin ourselves. I am not going to believe God to pay my penalty. I'm not going to trust Jesus to pay my penalty. I'm going to pay my penalty. That's what we're saying. It's really a shaking of the fist at God and saying, I know I've sinned and I'm willing to pay for it. And God just says, okay. Okay. If that's what you want to do, you can go right ahead and do it. But don't you blame me. I've told you everything you need to know. To avoid that reality. If you choose to go headlong into a Christless hell, paying the price for your own sin for all eternity, that's going to be for you to pay. 
By rejecting Christ and the price He has paid for us, we are making a conscious choice to pay for our sins ourselves. You can imagine what it would be like if you were in a courtroom having committed some kind of a small sin, some, some kind of a small breaking of the law. Let's say that you were caught going 50 in a school zone that was rated at 25 miles an hour. I'm looking around to see if anybody looks guilty. Okay, okay hopefully nobody does. Do you notice whenever I preach, I'm always looking at the back wall. There's a reason for that. I don't always want to look directly at you. I don't want to know what you're thinking some days. Okay. So sometimes I just preach like I'm preaching to a thousand people behind you. No, I, I say that facetiously, but imagine if you were caught going 50 in a 25 mile an hour zone and you went in front of a judge and the judge says, well, that's a pretty uh, gross thing that you did. In fact, there were kids letting out of school. That happened at about 3.15 in the afternoon and there were kids letting out of school. There were kids crossing the street. And if it had not been for five of those kids stopping because they saw you coming, you would have hit them and killed them. And so as a result of what you did in that speed zone, I'm going to fine you $8,000. That's what you have to pay because of what you did. And some of us might say, well, hold on a second. I've never gotten a speeding ticket in my life. I've stopped at every stop sign. I've turned my turn signal on at every turn. I don't understand what you're saying. Why are you telling me that I've got to pay $8,000 because I broke the law one time? That's right. Now, if it wasn't a just judge, he would say, oh, well, okay, you're right. I'll let you off the hook. But a just judge would never do that, would he? Because you broke the law. And there's a price you have to pay. And so the price in this case is $8,000. You've got to pay $8,000. Imagine if somebody walked into the room at that moment, opened the door right before the judge leveled down his gavel on his podium there. And he was about to tell, tell the whole crowd that you were guilty. You owed $8,000. His hand is up, hammer in his hand. He's about to drop it. And someone walks to the back door and they've got $8,000 in their hand. And they walk up to the front of the room and you're standing there and you're... you're just dazed by what's happening and you can't believe you owe that much and you don't know what you're going to do about it because you don't just have $8,000 sitting around. And somebody walks in the back door and they take that $8,000 and they hand it out to you. And as they're reaching out to you, the judge, eyes wide open, understanding that justice will still be served even if someone else pays the fines. He's about to hand you the $8,000 and you say, you know what? Not interested. Appreciate it, but not me. I'm going to forgo the pain of my fine and I would just rather pay it myself. This is why countless millions have split the gates of hell wide open. Because the penalty has been paid and they've chosen to reject the payment. And so we see that this payment, while we can... uh, Think about it that way and consider this guilty plea and that someone has paid it. I want to consider that payment for just a moment. The rest of verse number six or verse number 23 in chapter number six, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now turn right on over to Romans chapter number five and verse number eight. Romans chapter five and verse number eight. The Bible says, But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, listen to this, Christ died for us. Say, preacher, what was the price that we all have to pay? It's death. For the wages of sin is what? The wages, say it with me, the wages of sin is death. And the Bible here says that Christ did what? He died for us. See, what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary, and this is a, a blasphemous heresy that is creeping through these mega churches, that this was not as a means of substitution. 
That somehow what Jesus did on the cross was that he was just getting victory over darkness. That's all he was doing. It had nothing to do with substitution. It had nothing to do with paying a price for my soul. No, no, no. In fact, what Jesus did on the cross, it was just him dying for a good cause. I mean, he taught some really confrontational things and they didn't like it, so they killed him. There are many churches out there that are teaching that, but that's not what the Bible teaches. You see, I I could tiptoe around and try to make the gospel sound more appealing to you by telling you that the reason Jesus died was to just show you so much love that you couldn't turn him away. I mean, you just couldn't. He was so loving that he died for you, just he gave his life for you that you couldn't turn. But that's not the reason Jesus died on the cross. Preachers are a dime a dozen telling people that Jesus died on the cross because he loves them. And yes, that might be one element of why Jesus died on the cross. But the foundational element of why Jesus died on the cross was to pay the price for your sin. The price that God leveled down, not Satan. You understand that whenever Jesus paid for your sin, he wasn't paying Satan for your sin. Oh, no, 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 no. You have a gross misunderstanding of the justice and holiness and wrath of God if you think that Jesus was paying Satan for your sin. Understand this morning, He was paying God for your sin. A holy, righteous God who set up a perfect moral law that if man breaks that law, he then becomes in need of a Savior. This was the way God designed it. The way He planned it. So while we can choose to pay our sin debt ourselves by dying in our sins and spending eternity in hell, God, in His matchless love, His mercy, His grace, He made a way for sin, the sin debt to be paid in full, which, by the way, was the very last words that Jesus said as He hung on the cross of Calvary. Did you know that? The very last words that Jesus said, He said, it is finished. That's what it's translated as in our English King James Version Bible. But those same words, it's the word tetelestai. It's the same word that Roman guards would write at the top of the paperwork on a prisoner whose sentence, listen to this, whose sentence had been paid in full. They would write the word tetelestai. It is finished. Paid in full. And so as Jesus hung on that cross and right as He was giving up the ghost, He uttered one final statement. He said, it is finished. Paid in full. Paid in full. When Jesus died on the cross, He was fulfilling His part of the divine redemption covenant that was authored before the world was ever made. Mind you, God the Father promised His Son a people. And His Son promised to offer Himself to redeem those people back to God. And so that's exactly what happened. Jesus gave up his own life for us that we might be redeemed back to God. Jesus was not paying Satan for our souls. He was paying the Father for our sin. God's holiness, his wrath, his justice demanded payment. But here's the good news of the gospel. God's mercy, love, and grace provided that payment through the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, I don't know if you're getting excited about this, but I sure am. This is the gospel. Not what everybody's preaching is the gospel. This is the the Holy Spirit empowered, God-breathed gospel of Jesus Christ. The next thing I want to consider, and this is the same order that I would go if I was sitting with you in the room back there, is the perfection of the Savior. The perfection of the Savior. 
Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, in His time on earth accomplished and fulfilled all that God required for our redemption. His sinless life revealed Him as the perfect spotless Lamb of God. His willingness to offer Himself in our place revealed Him as the perfect substitute. His resurrection revealed Him as the perfect eternal Savior. And that's who God gave as a ransom for all of us. The Bible says in the most familiar verse in all the Bible, John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know that verse, don't you? You've heard that verse before, haven't you? But I'm hoping it's starting to mean something different as this message continues. That when God gave His own Son, we're not talking about some average human being that laid down His divinity and came to this earth and lived just as a man. I'm talking about God wrapping Himself in human flesh and living both as 100% God and 100% man. When He died on the cross of Calvary, that was God giving His life for us. Paying the ultimate price. Why was it that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient? Why wasn't it that all those lambs that were offered in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, why was it that none of those ever sufficed? Why were they never sufficient? It's because it took the perfect, spotless blood of God Himself shed on the cross of Calvary to pay the price eternally for our sin. You see, we all are sinners. There's a price to pay for that sin. And it's precisely the price that Jesus came to pay. Then, finally, I turn to the plan of salvation. Preacher, that's all great news. That's why we call it the gospel. It means good news. Preacher, that's great news, but how does that impact my life? How does that affect me? How does that become a part of who I am? What is it that God has told us and His Word is required for me to participate in this covenant? In this redemption covenant, God only requires one thing from man in order for us to be beneficiaries of the covenant. Say, preacher, I am dying to know what it is. You just tell me what i got to do. I'll do anything at this point. I, I finally, for the first time in my life, I understand what this is all about. So what have I got to do? What is it that's, that's the one missing thing that I so desperately need that without it, I'll split the gates of hell wide open and, and, and pay for all eternity for my sin. But, but with it, I, I'm able to uh, really accept the payment that Jesus made for me. What is it? Faith. That's what it is. Faith. Preacher, it can't... It, no, no, no. It, it cannot possibly be that simple. Well, you're right. It's not that simple. The kind of faith I'm talking about is not that simple. For some, it takes decades to find it. For others, they find it as a child. You're right, it's not simple. But it is that simple. That is all that God requires. You say, prove it to me, preacher. I want to know from God's own word whether that's true or not. Okay, you're already there. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. 
Romans chapter 5, verse 1. The Bible says, Therefore, being justified by faith. There it is. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Mind you, John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God wants genuine, humble, life-altering faith. That's what He requires. He requires for you to once and for all abandon your own efforts to pay for your own sin and to finally rest in what Jesus has done to pay for your sin for you. That's it. That's all it takes. And can I say that nothing else will do? You can't add anything to it. If you do, it's you relying on yourself to get you there. Faith plus baptism. That makes me feel better because I did something about it. No, 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 no. If it's faith plus baptism, you're still lost in your sin because it's not faith plus baptism. You cannot trust your own work to get you to heaven. Faith plus a special open sesame prayer, a, a sinner's prayer, if you will. So easy to do, isn't it? Preacher stands up, says, hey, you want to go to heaven? Just say these words after me and you get to go to heaven. And you say the words and hey, he tells you you get to go to heaven. It's an open sesame prayer. And you look back on your life, you're the rest of your life, and you say, look, there's the prayer. I prayed it. I said the words and now God has to do what I asked him to do because I said the words. No, that is not God's plan of salvation. It is faith plus nothing that equates to your eternal conversion. The way the old time preachers used to say it, and it's the way you've heard me say it many, many times, is that you have to allow your soul to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. In Christ alone. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says it this way. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works lest any man should boast. So then I ask one final question to close out today. I, I promise I'm just about done. One final question. A question I asked a good Bible believing, Bible preaching pastor one time. I was in my early 20s. The pastor was considering coming and being a pastor of a church I used to attend. And I asked him this very simple question. I said, at what moment is a person truly saved? Is it when they get the warm tinglys inside? Is it when they say amen to the sinner's prayer? Is it as they're coming out of the baptismal waters in the baptistry? Is it the moment they let go of the pew? Or maybe the moment they step out in the aisle? Or maybe it's the moment they kneel at the altar. I mean, can you tell me specifically at what moment is a person converted genuinely and eternally born again? And I'll never forget his answer. He said, you know, I don't quite understand your question. I said, okay, let me word it differently for you. Can you tell me biblically, scripturally, when a person can know that salvation occurred. 
He said, I don't think I can. I said, you're telling me that you're winging it? That you're just hoping that it sticks and it works? I mean, what is the deal? Has God's own word not shown us plainly at what point a soul is eternally converted? And the answer is yes. Yes. God's word has showed us. Write these references down. I don't have time to turn to all of them or read all of them, but I want you to write these references down. John chapter 3, verses 3 through 21. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. He tells him he must be born again. And when Nicodemus asks him, what do I got to do? Enter into my mother's womb a second time? Jesus says, no, 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 no. Believe on me. And you'll be saved. You can also write this reference down, Acts chapter number 8. If one reference isn't enough, let's give you another one. Acts chapter number 8, verses 29 through 38. It's where Philip is out in the middle of the desert, and he sees a chariot going by with an Ethiopian eunuch riding inside, and he's reading through the prophet of Isaiah, and he's understanding that something profound is happening here, but he doesn't know who Isaiah is talking about. Philip joins with the chariot. He steps into the chariot, and he begins to show that Ethiopian eunuch all the things that the Old Testament had to say about Jesus Christ. Finally, he gets to the end of it. He says, and this person that we are talking about just gave his life a ransom for many. His name is Jesus Christ. And that Ethiopian eunuch asked a very important question. He asked Philip, he said, what do I need to do to be baptized? It's a good question, but it wasn't quite the right question. And so Philip redirects the question and he says, do you believe with all of your heart in the Lord Jesus Christ? And he said, I believe. And he stopped the charity, baptized the man. Let's give you one more reference. Acts chapter number 16, verses 25 through 34. Paul and Silas are in a jail. They begin to sing and praise God and the jail doors open and their shackles fall off. Glorious miracle. But as they're about to depart from the grounds, they look over and they see one of the soldiers that was a guard for the prison. He's about to fall on his sword because he knows what's coming. If he has loosed all these prisoners and they've all gone free on his watch, he knows he's going to die anyway. And right before he falls on his sword, Paul cries out. He says, stop. The man looks over weeping and he begins to cry out to the apostle Paul. And he asks him one very important question. What must I do to be saved? And the Apostle Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So to answer that all important question, at what moment is a person truly saved? It's the moment where they allow their soul to rest by faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe if I were to take you back in my life to the moment I got saved, the best passage of scripture in all of the Bible to describe it is the one we've just read here in Romans chapter five, verses one and two. If you want to know exactly what salvation looked like and exactly what salvation felt like inside of me, the moment I was truly converted, you're reading it right here. Therefore, being justified by faith. The word justified there, it means to be forgiven. It means to have your account settled. It means the debt has been paid. It means what was formerly guilty has been made innocent. And that's the first way I felt when I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. There was an instantaneous lifting of a burden from my life, a burden I had been carrying since the earliest days I could remember. And now it's gone. But there's something else it says there. 
says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That was the second thing that happened. And it was instantaneous. Just as soon as my faith was resting in the finished work of Christ at that same moment, the burden was lifted and there was a peace. Let me tell you something that nobody could touch. It's a peace that hasn't left me. There's something about knowing that I was once an enemy of God and now I am his friend by faith. It's, there's something about knowing that I was once an outcast, but now I'm a part of the family of God by faith. There is this sweet and residing eternal peace that came over my soul the moment I rested in Christ. And then there's one last thing. It says in verse number two, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace where we stand. Here it is. And rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The third thing that happens simultaneous to the other two, justification, forgiveness, cleansing, a lifting of the burden, peace with God, an overwhelming, residing, eternal peace. But then thirdly, there was something else that happened. Rejoicing. I'll never forget the rejoicing. The rejoicing was slow in coming. It began the moment I rested in Christ, whenever I was mowing that backyard and came to faith in Christ. But I'll never, what I won't ever forget is the next morning. I'll never forget that day. You've heard people say that when something like this happens in your life, the sky is bluer and the birds sing sweeter. Have you heard that? It's true. I woke up the next morning and I walked out the yard and it felt like I was breathing for the first time. I looked up in the sky and I just listened. I was free. I was free. So many years I had spent in bondage, bondage to my own sin. And Christ came and broke the chains and liberated my soul. Can I tell you something? I've never been the same since. I'll never forget it. The moment a soul finally rests in the finished work of Christ, these will be the gloriously manifested Attributes that take over the heart of the believer. The question this morning is simple. Are you ready for that moment? Will you finally rest in Christ and all that he has done for you? Will you stop trying to make it on your own and believe on him for your salvation? That's what I ask the person sitting in the room. And then there is this moment. After I ask that question, after I've explained everything I've just explained to you, maybe not quite as loud and boisterous, but gentle and calm and collected in the room. I explain all those things to them and I ask them that question, are you finally ready to rest in all that Christ has done for you? And it's followed by this sweet silence. The tears that had finally dried up, they come back again. There's this pause, and then you can see it. You could see it in their eyes. There's a sparkle. And you can tell as you're watching this soul 
come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can see a soul that was in turmoil and broken and lost and undone being gloriously birthed instantaneously into the family of God as their soul finally rests in the Lord Jesus. I believe it's something that needs to happen with perhaps many that are here today. And so I'm going to ask you, in closing, will you have the courage? Say, preacher, I've been a member here for a long time. But what you're saying is resonating in my heart and that's never happened for me. I've never known Jesus like that. I don't care what position you hold. I don't care how long you've been here. Your soul hangs in the balance and you cannot allow the pride of what you think people might think about you to get in the way of what God wants to do in you. You'll be learning tonight of someone in our church who's been a member for years and years and years who had the courage just last Sunday to give their heart and life to Christ and salvation. And the question is, who else needs him? I wish that I had been here for 15, 20 years. I might know better where everyone is spiritually, but I don't. I've been here for four years. Those of you that were here before me, I have no idea where you stand with God. I'm only left to assume based on our conversations that everything's okay, but I don't know. Are you truly a child of God or are you not? Right now, I believe the Holy Spirit of God is showing you. I believe right now He's whispering into your soul, showing you your need to finally rest in the finished work of Christ.